Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by The Profitability Coach. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge and relationships from 32 years as a banker to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver the profitability they never thought possible. We have three great guests on the show today. Katie Sparks with the law office of Catherine Sparks. Katie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Bill. And Jim Sachansky. Jim is CEO of Flex HR. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you, Bill, for having us today. And Sean Vernamo with Arcus Roofing. Sean, so glad to have you on the show today. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Bill. So, Katie, we're going to start with you. So, you know, tell the audience a little bit about what you do and who you do it for and then maybe why you're doing it. Sure. Um, I'm a business law attorney, so I have the pleasure every day of helping my clients and uh, supporting them as they grow their business. It's a practice area that I really love. Um, You know, 99% of businesses in the U.S. are classified as small businesses. So, of course, their success is important to the business owner and, and to their families but also to our local and our national economy. So it's, it's important work, and it's, it's work I enjoy. Um, one thing that I remind my clients uh, is that no matter how small their business is, even if it's a, even if it's a one-man uh, shop at first, there are still legal needs that they have. So um, they have a lease or a vendor contract that needs to be reviewed. There might be a, a problem with a client, an unhappy customer perhaps, um, and so really any legal question that they have during the day is something that I would encourage them to call about and, and we can discuss and find a way forward. Yeah, I know for me, I've always suggested to my clients, you really have to have your own personal board of advisors. Uh, you need a banker, uh, you need a good CPA, uh, but you also need a good attorney and uh, probably need to throw a good human resource person in there as as well as uh, maybe from time to time a roofing contractor. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> But uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're a new business owner yourself, uh, having recently started your firm. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to start your own business? I think um, I've caught the entrepreneurial bug, maybe. I'm I'm not sure. Um, That's part of it, though. Uh, I've had the pleasure of living vicariously through my business clients over Uh the years. And so I felt like I was at a point where I kind of knew what I was getting into yeah. uh, starting my own business. So so that's been exciting. Um, but it does feel different on the other side of the desk, so to speak. You know, I've, I've counseled people about proper formation and getting those initial contracts in order and business licenses and everything. But doing it for myself um, was a little surreal. It was, it was strange. Yeah, I can totally uh, relate to that. So I had someone sit me down and say, okay, you're, you know, you're not a banker anymore. Uh, you are a business owner. And so these are the things that uh, you need to do. Sounds like you maybe had one of those uh, uh, situations yourself as you started. Yes, exactly. And, and it was good. It, it reinforced again, um, you know, how much business owners have on their plate, um, particularly at the beginning. And so one of the, one of the values, uh, 
valuable services I offer is being able to take some of those things off of their plate um, as far as those legal needs go. Um, but starting the firm was also just a natural progression in my own career journey. Mm-hmm. I am um, blessed to be mom to a young daughter. And so having uh, having that flexibility to be available for her was really important to me. Sure. And that's something that uh, that my clients tell me frequently. You know, they started their business because they want better work life balance, or they want to be available to their families. So it's a it's a pleasure to be able to help people achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know there are a lot of lawyers out there. Uh, what do you feel is maybe uh, makes your practice special or different, or maybe even further? What what specific types of legal problems do you solve for your clients? Um, well, there are a lot of attorneys, um, but I think that's a good thing. You know, I think it's important for people to find uh, professionals that they click with that are going to understand their business and, and their goals. Um, several things make my firm different. I think the first is my approach. Um, my style is very warm and encouraging. Um, and, I would and that's, agree. <laughs> thanks. But that's not what people generally expect um, necessarily dealing with an attorney. Uh, attorneys have a reputation well-deserved sometimes for being intimidating or, or hard to deal with. And um, I work very hard to speak in plain English, not slip into legalese. So I'm sure that we're communicating well. Uh, I'm responsive. And and my goal is always to make sure that I'm collaborating with my client and, and helping them to solve problems because they are the expert in, in their business, in their industry. Sure. You know, I had a similar situation as a former banker. Uh, bankers can also be a little intimidating, especially when you're going to them to apply for money. And they also have their own jargon. I call it bank speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they often don't in- interpret. So I can totally relate to that. Right. So so being able to to talk to the client and, and to um, to really let them know that, that we're in this together and I'm there to help them uh, safeguard and grow their business. And then the other thing that uh, I'd like to mention is my billing structure is different from a lot of firms mm-hmm. in that the majority of my work is on a flat fee basis. So um, I'm sitting down with the client. We're talking about uh, their their legal needs right now, potentially what we see for the future based on their plans. And then we can prioritize and, and um, I'll issue a proposal for a flat fee. So they know going in what it's going to cost, and that provides a lot of comfort. Yeah, a lot of business owners are very, very concerned every time they make a phone call as to whether they're on the clock or off the clock. So that that really alleviates that that concern. Exactly. And I want to incentivize them to call me so that I know what's going on. Exactly. So I'm not going to ding them for those calls. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great that's a great point. So uh, let's pretend I'm I'm a new business owner. I've just launched my business. Uh, do you feel like it's important for that new business to have a relationship with an attorney right away, even though money might be a little bit tight? I do. Um, I suppose that sounds like a self-serving answer, uh, but there's a lot that happens on the front end that needs to be done properly. And it's cliche because it's true that it's less expensive to do it right at the beginning than to pay to fix it later. Sure. So um, things like proper formation, um, partnership agreements, because even if everybody is is the best of friends at the outset, business partnerships are like marriage partnerships. And unfortunately, not all of those will be successful. So it's really important that we have um, clear ownership and responsibilities and, and a way to exit the business if it just doesn't work out. Another area where I often assist my clients is with protecting their intellectual property. So before they 
um, roll out the new name for their business or their product or their service before they print 40,000 brochures, <laughs> we want to make sure that it's protectable. And so that means, is first, is it distinctive? Are they going to stand out in the marketplace? Um, but also, more importantly, could they be infringing on somebody else's trademark? Yeah. Because again, that's uh, it's much more expensive. It's, it's an issue at that point um, that we might be able to head off by not using a name that's not protectable. Sure. We're talking this morning with Katie Sparks. Katie is a business law attorney who works closely with her clients to help them deal with legal risk so they can focus on running their business. From formation to expansion to eventual sale, legal needs are an ever-present reality. Uh, Katie's firm aspires to be an integral part of each client's team, supporting and championing the business on the legal front. Uh, and that brings the question about team. Um, you know, there are professionals that you feel like the business owner needs to have in order to be successful. Uh, what industries would you include in that? And do you have your own team? I do have my own team. Um, and it sounds like our, our views are very similar on this one, Bill, um, because I advise my clients to make sure that they have uh, support in four areas. Um, and that is legal, accounting, insurance, and banking. So uh, my advice to my clients is, is to build those relationships. If, if they don't have someone in those areas that they already know and want to work with, to ask fellow business owners uh, for recommendations. Um, and of course, I'm happy to, to make introductions to people that my clients have had uh, good experiences with in the past. So for our listeners out there, whether it's a uh, new business just starting uh, who needs that legal person on their team, uh, or even an established business that's looking for specific expertise, uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Thanks, Bill. Uh, my website is still in development, and that's launching later this year. I'm really excited about that. In the meantime, the best way to contact me is on LinkedIn or via email, and my email is ksparks at katherinesparkslegal.com. Great. Katie, it's been great having you on the show and giving us some insights into uh, uh, your practice and also into the legal profession. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Now we swing over to Jim Sachansky. Um Jim, people, uh, getting the right people in the right seats. Uh, there's such a, a war for talent out there. Uh, I can't imagine uh, how challenging but also rewarding it is to be in the human resources area i know you shared with me that you were part of the m&a team for a prior employer and you did hr audits on companies that were being acquired uh, before we get into the rest of that could you talk a little bit more about that and what your role was and how that maybe turned into you launching your firm well it absolutely did uh, launch it into um, starting flex hr over 20 years ago now um, but, wow, 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago. Um, however, you know, when I was doing M&As for my companies I worked for, um, we would go in and do a full due diligence and audit of HR and see how that company could fit into our company and what redundancies we had and all of that kind of stuff, where we could save money, all of that kind of, you know, stuff. But when we did audits, it was quite funny because um, many times people don't realize that the human capital of a company is the most costly part of your company. And a lot of times they forget to even do a due diligence on their HR, especially when I get called in today with a merger that's already happened and it's not working well and what's going on. And then you 
say, okay, let me take a look at your audit you did. It's like we didn't do an audit, that kind of stuff. So in these audits, I would actually sometimes take a company down by 50% of the asking price that we had a lever intent on because of the HR risk. Wow. Especially in some of the high-tech areas and things of that nature where nobody even knew where – confidentiality was like um we were just talking about um in that legality part of who owns it uh who developed it uh who could say it's they have it now and all that kind of stuff as well so um that part of it and just the part of molding the people into the new company 85 percent of acquisitions don't make it hmm uh, so the reason a lot of it is is because they don't do their due diligence up front and make sure that it's a good fit. And then how do you fit the people and that company into your company? Uh, so that I, I worry about that a lot. Um, today I'm, I stopped counting after 350 acquisitions and mergers I've done, but I'm probably over 400 today. Wow. And uh, it's, been a, it's been fun, but it also is a lot of fun to – help companies overcome those fears of what do we do all these people and how many should go and we have two CFOs now, what happens now, all that kind of stuff that happens during uh, a merger. So out of that uh, uh, M&A background, uh, looking at the human capital piece, uh, most businesses do staff their core competencies but outsource the rest and so those HR audits, uh, those things that you did in your in your background has really positioned you to fill a niche as an HR outsource provider. So talk about how you've built Flex HR on the concept of protecting businesses from HR risk. Right. Um, so when I saw those risks happening in these companies as I was doing those audits, um, that's what came into my mind. It was on airplane flight back from California uh, one night after I took a company down by a substantial amount of their uh, 11-10 price. And um, I sat there and said, wow, these companies just don't have great HR inside their companies. Uh, they gave the accounts payable person because they paid the benefits bill, the HR job. And that person had no experience in HR. So as we started up the company with providing consultants really as like the VP of HR on a fractional basis inside a company, just like an attorney would do and a CFO would do uh, to smaller companies, we did it on the HR side. And as we grew, we kept on seeing uh, companies just didn't want the administrative portion inside their company anymore from the confidentiality of salaries to um, I keep on turning over this person. So we got to keep training somebody else and that kind of stuff. Um, so eventually uh, 15 years ago, we started outsourcing portions of the HR function and or 100% of the HR functions. So today we um, are a very large outsource company. We're not a PEO or an ASO model. So the employers get to keep their employees. They don't have to have lease agreements, all that kind of stuff. But we manage all their HR from writing the offer letter where most of the companies start getting into legal problems because they don't know an exempt from a non-exempt employee. Now they're writing a full annual salary on the offer letter, which 
could result in a full annual payout if you terminate somebody early Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So there's all those little technical things to keep a company in compliance that we start right off the bat with and make sure everything's done right. We get those confidentiality agreements prepared and signed, uh, those type of things. And uh, I can't believe what many of the audits we do for clients that they saw, oh, all my I-9s are completed, they're all great, and I take a look at them, and there's probably anywhere between a 1% to 100% deficiency rate on them. Ouch. <laughs> you know, the devil is in the details. It is. <laughs> it is. So we're talking today with uh, Jim Sachansky, he's a founder of Flex HR uh, in their 21st year business. Uh, Jim's experience includes operational HR management knowledge globally in 32 countries, and uh, as he mentioned earlier, has merged or transitioned well over 350, now closer to probably to 400 organizations. Uh, also, last year with the COVID pandemic, Jim provided over 50 seminars, reaching over 7,000 owners and operators of small and mid-sized businesses. Jim, I want to kind of shift our conversation uh, and maybe even peel the onion back a little bit about uh, the HR audit that you perform for new clients as a best practices approach. I know you and I have worked together on on several businesses in that capacity, uh, but things like offer letters, uh, confidentiality agreements, for example. So talk a little bit about the HR audit that you perform for new clients. Absolutely. So um, as a client comes and joins us as uh, an outsourced client, and says, okay, I'm ready to outsource everything to, to you because I'm not doing it right and or I don't know how to do it or I get turnover in that area and um, I don't know what to hire next, a, a manager, a VP, a director, and now they want people and it, I'm not that big of a company. What do I do? So um, – they come to us and say, okay, let's get this outsourced. And the first thing we do is audit what they have. And usually there's a lot of deficiencies, but we, we're not there to ding the client to say, oh, this is all wrong. We're there to then clean them up to make them compliant uh, with all the laws and regulations. I mean, we have some companies that have 40 employees And they only have three employees at their corporate headquarters, and there's one in every other state. So Mm -hmm. today, trying to manage 50 states of laws and regulations, and of course, some states even have local requirements. Like uh, when you take a look at California, there's 18 other pay practices like wage and hour, minimum wage practices than the state law. So trying to keep up with that, um, the city of Chicago, basically, Cook County, um, they have sick leave, but no other place in the state. So you actually have to find out exactly where they are on the map and are they in Cook County and what law do they have to abide by. Sure. So we do those type of audits and make sure everything is done. And in those um, audits, we usually wind up – um, we find out that they don't give confidentiality agreements to their employees and non-solicits. And those are very important today. You don't want somebody to go and take your business and start another business or take it to your competitor and bring half of their your staff with that competitor. So you want these confidentiality and non-solicitations uh, completed, signed by the employees. Make sure the offer letter is perfect. We usually have to recut those and make those happen. But then we do an onboarding process of making sure everything gets done from the I-9. If in your e-verify state, you get that done. 
and just make sure they're compliant. I can remember one of our clients uh, got sold to Xerox, and it was only a 34-employee company, and they buy a lot of 34-employee-type companies. And they basically said, wow, we weren't able to ding you one penny on your HR practices. It was pretty clean. It says, oh, that's because we have Flex HR watching over that stuff. So it does help a client. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, I noticed in, on your profile and, and just want to share with our audience, so recently Jim was recognized uh, in the North Fulton Atlanta Chamber as Small Business Person of the Year. Uh, Jim is also listed in Catalyst Magazine. Uh, you're one of the uh, uh, most promising HR staffing service vendors in the past. Uh, also recognized Flex HR in the Inc. 5000 uh, in the past as uh, one of the fastest growing privately held companies. A lot of a lot of success, Jim, and I think uh, it it kind of showcases. Uh, uh, the need for high quality uh, human resources uh, and most businesses uh, aren't as focused as maybe they could be or should be on making sure those uh, uh, HR resources are, uh, are taken care of. I want to switch our conversation. So a lot of consolidation going on in the marketplace, uh, businesses buying other businesses, uh, certainly having been in the banking industry, I've seen a lot of consolidation, but it's certainly not limited to, to banking in, in any way. So the industries that are, are undergoing consolidation, doesn't it become problematic when you have four to six companies consolidating with possibly diverse HR people and processes? It absolutely does. Um, actually, currently, I am working on two consolidations right now, a um, group that's uh, buying five companies and uh, building a new company out of that, and then another one that acquired three companies but now want to get cleaned up because they want to go public in second quarter of next year, which is a very aggressive um goal for them. So we are now out there cleaning everything up and consolidating them. Right now, those companies are running separate policies and they're already getting into situations. Well, we want to bring this person into this company, but they have different benefits and 401k plans and different ways of doing business. So we are looking at every policy, every process and consolidating them. So literally January 1st, our goal is to have everybody on one payroll, on one federal entity. So now we can move people back and forth easy and one cent of benefits with one 401k plan consolidated. And so sometimes that's tricky because one company might have a PTO of, let's say, two weeks for this group of people and they're going to give sick time out and another company gives PTO and no sick time. And then there's another company that has unlimited PTO. So which one do you go with and what makes sense? And um, what's the cost of the company going to be as well? Sure. And all of that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, we make those decisions and we have a go forward plan. So, uh, we're talking about building our 120-day plan, which is getting close. We've got a couple more months to that. <laughs> and then uh, we will have everything done by January 1st. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. But that's one situation and one way we help companies 
get that consolidation done and completed and understood by all the employees. That's another thing. The communications to the employees are a huge piece because we need to save them. Um, it's tough, as I think your first statement uh, today about HR was, it's tough finding people, getting people on the bus, and um, making them feel uncomfortable about the company they're in is not what it's all about in a merger and acquisition. It's the other way, right. and over-communicating is usually best. Yeah, yeah, no question. Uh, I am confident that we're going to have listeners as a result of our conversation today wanting to reach out to you and your firm. Uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with either you or with FlexHR? Well, our website is pretty easy, www.flexhr.com. I'm listed there, and um, you can contact us, and uh, we will uh, do a discovery and see what we could do to help. Yeah. Jim Sachansky, founder of FlexHR, thanks so much for coming on ProfitSense today. Enjoy it. So I'm going to switch now to Sean Vernamo. Sean's with uh, CEO of uh, Arcus Roof, and Sean, so glad to have you. Uh, really want to talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. And so uh, share with our listening audience uh, how you became an entrepreneur and maybe even what keeps you as an entrepreneur. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. I think all entrepreneurs are a little bit crazy. And there's usually a true. A, yes, we are. <laughs> Why would we do what we do if we were not? And so like all good things in life, there's a story attached. And so I was working for an engineering firm. And if, if you can imagine, it's a sea of gray hairs. Now, I'm a young college kid, so I haven't gone gray yet. And I'm in the back corner in the darkest area, as far from the window, the doors, and the bathrooms as you can get. I have zero seniority. And it's probably too hot or too cold. Oh, absolutely. And they don't let young engineers near the thermostat. Right. And so I'm in there, and I'm in a cubicle. And these are really pretty much pre-computer days. And we're doing slide rules and blueprints. And... The managing partner came in and said, we have an opportunity. We need somebody to go stand on a roof and watch a bunch of guys work. Now, can you imagine the older gentleman, the gray hairs all stepped back, and I'm fighting to get to the front of the line. I want it out of that cubicle. And so that began, they sent me as the young guy. So I was standing on a Georgia roof in the summer at about 110 degrees and never looked back. Wow. So that was kind of the process. It got me into the industry. And then I was a millennial before millennials. I was a job hopper, but it was because I wanted to grow and I wanted to learn. And And I've worked in small business and usually there's no way up. You know, you've got the owner, the owner's family and a couple of long-term employees. And you talk about from HR, there's just no there's no path. There's no career. And as you know, you've launched your own law firm. It's the same type situation. You really want to make partner, but you may not want to grind for the next 30 years. And so I would move every couple of years to take the next position up. And so from a junior to a standard, to a senior, to a director, and eventually to the, to the CEO chair. And Lord knows I didn't know what I was in for when I took that last step. It was so much easier being an employee than it was to step over. But once I did that, I, it was, it was never looking back. It was the opportunity to be the master of your own destiny. Yes, it's crazy, 
but at least you have some control. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, you can set your own schedule and your own flexibility and you have some control that if you're just a nine to five employee that you do not. Yeah. So who would have thought that a young engineer now would have uh, become the CEO of a successful roof company. So talk specifically about Arcus, uh, what you do, uh, who you do it for, and also why you do it. Well, we do it. I was a, for the first part of my career, I was a consultant and we had done due diligence analysis for some of the largest commercial property owners in the country. And we would write these beautiful reports and we would make all these great recommendations as a consultant and then nothing would get done. And so what we found was, or I found was that frustration and I wanted to be able to actually execute and I'm third generation contractor, but I was the first that was a design professional. And so wanting the ability to actually take it one step further and execute. So I had a friend of mine at the time convince me, as I like to say, I joined the dark side. I left the consulting business and I became a contractor. And so as a contractor for the last 17 plus years and 30 years in the industry, we can execute. And so not only can we develop these great plans for clients, and that usually starts with, tell me what you want to do with your property. And then from there, we can design the plan and then execute to the client's goals. So it's not about just replace your roof. Excellent. We're talking with Sean Vernema this morning. Sean is an expert in solving roofing problems and applying an investment approach to all roofing portfolios. As a trained engineer with a passion for roofing, he's been able to serve and educate clients, including three of the top five property management firms and the largest pension fund in the United States. Now, you and I had a conversation about the biggest myth in roofing. So talk a little bit about that. What is the biggest myth in roofing? Well, the biggest myth is, is that your roof has failed. And this applies both to commercial and residential. Um, you get a roof leak. Okay, got to call the contractor. So you call the contractor. Contractor comes out and says, oh, you need a new roof. And so that's a myth. Um, commercial roofs have a life expectancy of around 20 years. And so as you get close to that age, the industry knows that, and the industry will use that. Oh, yeah, you're at 20 years, your roof has failed. Well, that's really a myth. Roofs don't catastrophically fail. There's few exceptions, some product stuff, but by and large, roofs just continue to get leak, and the leaks get a little bit worse. So what we do is we approach that differently. We start with, we can generally fix those leaks. Let's do this. And I tell my clients all the time, your frustration with roof leaks will fail first before that roof does. And so the new products that they're using, those roofs can be pushed out for 20, 25, 30 years. And they, as long as they're properly maintained, we can delay that re- expensive capital replacement for quite a while. Wow. I had, uh, I had no idea. Uh, so actually, the ability to extend it rather than replace it uh, is an equally valid strategy, and there are specific ways to do that. Oh, absolutely. You take clients buying a property, we're doing due diligence, and, and we've done this a number of times where they've assessed the roof, their contractor said, yes, you need a new roof. It's a six-figure or a seven-figure hit to the deal. And now the deal falls apart because the economics don't work. And so for us to be able to come in and say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's approach this differently. Let's take a, how long are you holding the property? What are your goals for the, what are your objectives? And so we can come in and do some aggressive maintenance in a lot of cases and get them through their whole period. And then all of a sudden, the deal gets done. 
as opposed to, oh, yeah, you just need a new roof. Wow. So talk a little bit about uh, the differences and similarities of issues in residential versus commercial roofing and how you solve them. Residential, and I do feel sorry for most homeowners these days, residential roofing has gotten expensive. And I really, it's a struggle for us particularly because if you're on on a a fixed income or if you're on uh, a limited income, Having to write roofing in America right now, residentially on average, is about $10,000 a house. A little more in some expensive areas, a little less in some areas, but on average across the board. Well, that's a big ticket. It is. And so if you're looking at a roof residentially and and your contractors are saying, hey, you got to replace it, you got to replace it, that's tough because where is $10,000 in today's market going to come from to, to bite this bullet? And so- what we look at residentially is we try to let's do some maintenance. Let's do some repairs. Let's talk about what can we do to help you get this to last a little bit longer, to give you some time to save up. Now, ultimately you do have to replace the roof, but what we're really looking at is the, the function in the pri- the primary function of the roof is to keep water out of your residence. What can we do to do that? It ain't, it may not look pretty, but you know, $10,000 looks a lot prettier on my mantle than in than the contractor's pocket. So <laughs> we understand that, and we take that sympathetic approach to our clients, particularly on the residential side. Yeah, and then the commercial? So commercial's a little bit different, I, and if you really want to scare a commercial owner, walk in and tell them, oh, yeah, you're you're renting this building for $7 a square foot, but I need 8 for the roof, and watch their eyeballs just explode out of their head. Um, commercially, it's a little bit different. There's two types. You have long-term holders of property. These are typically folks that are business owners, own their real estate, and it's attached, and they're going to be in there for 20 years. And so our when we talk to those, that's a little bit different approach. Sometimes we will roof those buildings because we're using today's dollars to, to buy the roof and, and to push that out another 20 or 25 years. If you're an investor, most of the investment firms are in, in and out of a property in about seven years. And so now it's a question of do we really need to do it? Can we get seven years at disposition at seven years? What's the property going to look like? Are you going to get dinged at the negotiating table? And are you going to have to buy it with funds in seven years? And so we're really taking an investment approach with them to say, tell us what you're intending to do. And then we can build the plan around that. Makes a lot of sense. And so rather than replace it, uh, that particular investment firm may choose to um, repair the roof, attempt to extend the value. Yeah. So if someone wants to get in touch with you and and Arcus, what is the best way for them to do that? Where our website is the easiest way, and it's arcusroof.com, A-R-C-U-S. Easiest way to go there, phone numbers, address, emails, all of that, they can reach us from there. Great. Sean, it's been great having you on Profit Sense. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. If you want to keep up with the latest in pro-business news, follow us on social media for the latest stories. If you want to listen to future Profit Sense podcasts, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is Profit Sense with Mill McDermott signing off. Make it a great day.